Now, you guys are all pretty normal, right? I know I'm normal. I don't know about Dean here. But most of you guys are pretty normal. Now, too many people are happy with normal, and too many people, uh, or too few people, pursue significance. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with normal, right? There's all kinds of good things about normal. It just depends on the sense of the word you use, or so argues Jonathan Purnell in his book, Never Settle for Normal. Some good normal. Taking out the trash, even when the trash has a little hole in it and it dribbles as you're taking it out the door. And then you have to walk around with a paper towel in your hand and look for all the little dribbles that you miss so that your house doesn't smell like slime. That's a good normal. Taking showers is a great normal. Please do that. (laughs) But some normal is just, well, stupid. The normal that has become our cultural mindset. The normal that pretends like God doesn't exist or lives like God doesn't exist. The normal that presents life as having no ultimate purpose or meaning and then acts like that we're better off for it for some reason. It's the kind of normal that says everything that matters is now. If you want the good life, if you want the life of significance or happiness, you need to find it in the stuff around you. And so people accumulate and they accrue things. And then you talk to the people that have it all. And they say, it did nothing for me. I think we did an entire sermon series about that in Ecclesiastes, didn't we? Each pursuit is only a temporary joy that fizzles, leaving us regularly wondering, is this it? Is this all there is? Is there something more to life? Well, this morning as we look at Nehemiah chapter 11, I'm going to redefine significance for you. You see, I believe that these people in Jerusalem led significant lives. And I believe that that's what everyone wants to do with their life. They want to lead a life that is significant. Now we're going to pick apart um, certain implications from this text. As you look at the text, you're going to be thinking to yourself, how in the world did he pull anything from this and how is he going to preach this and give us a challenge from it? Well, there's stuff in there, let me tell you. So let's begin with implication number one. Significant people... Go where God is actively working. You can appreciate Nehemiah 11 by going back to Nehemiah chapter 7. If you look at verse 4 of Nehemiah 7, you understand the problem that they bring the solution to here in chapter 11. It says that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. So this city had a lot going on for it already in Nehemiah chapter 7. They had a temple. They had guards that were protecting the city and keeping the gates. They even had this nice big wall around the city. It was just missing its main ingredient. People. Jerusalem was a ghost town. Now I just want you to think about the why. Why would people not want to go into Jerusalem? I think there was a couple of reasons. The first is that the city had a reputation about it. It had lied with a rubble, uh, a wall of rubble for 160 years. So you start forming thoughts about a place. The other thing is, is that if people are going to come in and do thievery and invade and that type of stuff, where are you going to go? You're not going into the suburbs. You're going into that nice, 
fat, plump city. So living in Jerusalem was like having a big target painted across your back. And suburban living is pretty cozy, isn't it? People don't tend to go from the suburbs into the city. They tend to go from the city back out to the suburbs. That's why you live on Cape Cod, isn't it? So that's what's happening here. So this leads the leaders to come up with a solution, a creative idea. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 11. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Well, nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Verse 1 presents the irony, doesn't it? Jerusalem is the holy city. It's the city where God has chosen to place his name, the great city of the people, and yet no one wants to live there. So what do they do? Essentially, two factors bring the people into the city, both of them factors of compulsion. The first is an external compulsion. They cast lots and one out of ten, if you draw the short straw, you get to go and live in Jerusalem. And so these people move from the cozy suburbs into the city. But I'm much more interested in the second factor, the internal compulsion. Do you see that there in verse 2? It says that some willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. That's amazing. God had internally stirred the hearts of some of these people in such a way that they were willing to give up something that was valuable to them. Their ease, their comfort, their prosperity, because they wanted to do something that they saw as more valuable. Go into the city where God's great name was made to dwell and live for the sake of his glory. Now, you might think about this and just ask yourself, well, why do that? Why risk happiness and health and live in this broken-down dump of a city? Sure, they had built the wall, but there was still rubble all over the city because that broken-down dump was where God was at work in the world. God was most visibly and actively at work in Jerusalem. And I want to say this to you. You will not find significance, true significance, or true happiness in this life if you do not place yourself where God is actively working. If you find yourself somewhere else than where God is actively working, you're missing the boat. Now, in Nehemiah's day, Jerusalem was the missional engine of God's kingdom. And today, I would submit to you that the missional engine of God's kingdom is you the local church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then we see in the book of Acts and then on into the epistles that these little local gatherings start springing up and and they go forth into the region where they lived and they share the gospel of Jesus Christ and God does marvelous things. He turns the world upside down through these people. Mark Dever writes, local churches exist to display God's glory to the nations. We do that by fixing our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
trusting him for salvation and then loving one another with God's own holiness, unity, and love. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm just a member of the local church. I'm just someone that is sitting and listening to this preacher prattle on. But I want to tell you this. I think that Nehemiah, if he lived in our day and age, would not have been a pastor. I think he would have been a politician, a CEO, a district court judge. He wouldn't have been a pastor, but he would have been a member of his local church. Nehemiah would have been active and visible in the life and the body of the church. He would have been discipling people. He would give generously to the work. He would prioritize his time so that he could sit under the preached word and regularly engage in worship. He'd feel the burden for the lost people that surround this area just like the pastor does, if not more so. Why? Because Nehemiah pursued significance. He left Persia, the hotbed of the world at that time to pursue significance and broken down Jerusalem. These people in Nehemiah 11.2 leave the security and the ease of the suburbs to go where God is actively working. Let's look at another principle in the text. The second is this. Significant people use the everyday, ordinary well. Now, if you were to go about the city of Jerusalem at this time as these people are moving in, and if the scholars are correct, some 10,000 moved into the city by the lottery, and some others came as well under that internal compulsion. Now, you would ask them the question, why are you living here? And they'd have a very quick response, I am living here because of the glory of God. And then you would ask them another question, well, what are you doing here? And they would also have a very quick response, because the people of God must know who they are and what they are supposed to be doing. And I see uh, six different replies to this question here in chapter 11. I see the reply in verse 2 that just simply says, I live here. There's something significant about presence, being somewhere for a stated purpose. If you look at verse 12, you would hear some people say that I work in the temple. In fact, the text says that some 822 people worked in the temple. I mean, just imagine that operation. 822 people actively pursuing the worship of God in the city. Verse 16, I care for the temple grounds. It says that they cared for the outside work of the house of God. It's important when things are maintained well. It's important when people feel a personal burden to see a place look good. Verse 17, I lead in prayer. The NIV translates that Madaniah led in thanksgiving and prayer. And every local church needs people that are willing to do that. Verse 19, I watch the gates. I keep the city safe. Verse 22, I sing songs of praise. Now, I would suggest to you that the important principle here is that significance on the negative side is not found in doing the spectacular or having the spectacular happen to you. It's not making it into the NFL that makes you a significant person 
or becoming a corporate titan that makes you a significant person. It's not having a spectacular event happen to you. Like tomorrow, a spectacular event is about to happen, right? A solar eclipse. And I'll tell you, it'll get even more spectacular if you look directly at that without glasses. (laughs) That's spectacular. But no, significance here is found through the, the steadily, faithfully, consistently living of their lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's significance. What does this look like? It looks like showing up. It looks like letting your yes be yes and your no be no. It looks like praying for neighbors who don't know Jesus, sharing Jesus with them, using your spiritual gifts in the church. Significant people use the everyday ordinary well. They maximize the normal things of life for the sake of the glory of God. One pastor makes this point by telling the story of an uneducated layman who imparted many are impacted many in Philadelphia region. He writes, To tell about Lawrence, I only have to describe his funeral. Following his death after a long struggle with cancer, uh, many people came to his service. Well before the service was scheduled to begin, our church sanctuary was jam-packed and there were parking problems throughout downtown Philadelphia. People must have wondered whether the president was in town or whether someone important, you know, a politician or a a CEO had died and was being buried. No. It was just Lawrence, a lively, elderly, African-American man who never had a good formal education, worked as a doorman at a downtown hotel, and lived with his family in what other people would call the ghetto. Lawrence's funeral service was not only packed, it was long. Person after person came to bear testimony of how Lawrence had been used by God in their lives. Some had come to faith in Christ through Lawrence and were then mentored by him in their early Christian growth. In fact, three different pastors spoke about how Lawrence had led them to Christ and encouraged them to go into the ministry. Lawrence's children and grandchildren spoke of his legacy of faith and love in their lives. The whole service was simply overwhelming. Afterward, I was sitting in the office of one of my fellow ministers at the church. We were both dazed by what we had just seen, even though we both knew Lawrence well. The funeral had been a glorious experience, and we were awestruck. After several minutes of silence, my friend said to me, it just goes to show what God can do in the life of any man or woman who yields himself or herself unreservedly to Jesus. This is exactly what Lawrence's life of humble, godly service shows, and his story should encourage us to find our significance in revealing God's glory and grace through what we do as Christians. You see, we're seeing a principle here in Nehemiah 11, and we're seeing it in Lawrence's life, No one is remembered for their personality. You won't remember someone for their personality. No one is remembered for their appearance. We've got this all messed up today, don't we? Significant people are remembered for what they do. That's why I remember Jane Wheeler. For what she did. Are you using the everyday ordinary well?
Another principle. Significant people look to God for their approval. Now as you look through this list of Nehemiah chapter 11, I think you'll notice that there are many people who equally sacrificed, equally worked to prosper Jerusalem and who are just simply not named. There's a list here, a list there. 822, 928. Priests, Levites, descendants of certain tribes, etc. are mentioned, but most of the people are not mentioned by name. And so the question we have to ask, are they less important? Are they less valuable? Did they do anything less for the kingdom of God? Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to work for God, for God's work, without receiving any notice? I think that's a very challenging question because I think we would viscerally respond to that and say, oh yeah, 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 I'm fine with that. But let me ask it like this. What happened the last time you did something and no one said thank you? No one patted you on the back? Where did your brain go? The danger in listening to a series called Lead Where You Are in the book of Nehemiah where I develop certain leadership principles is to walk away and to think that I can utilize these principles, indeed manipulate these principles in order to advance my own name and my own success. I can use these for my advantage, but I think that that's totally missing the point of this series. These leadership qualities are only truly maximized when we use them for the sake of God's glory, when we use our influence, our leadership ability, if you will, in order to do God's work in God's way, regardless of who takes notice. In fact, that's a leadership principle. Leadership principle 33. Leaders lead regardless of others taking notice. Chuck Swindoll says this in his book, Hand Me Another Brick. Make a commitment to be Um, Make a commitment to the Lord to be, if necessary, as unknown as possible in your position of influence. This is a genuine test of strong leadership. If you desire fame and recognition, you will most likely fail as a leader and indeed your efforts in eternity will go unrewarded. Jesus said this, didn't he? Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, look, if you get recognized for what you're doing, and if that's the internal motivation for why you're doing what you did, there's your reward. When someone pats you on the back, so all that treasure that you've been storing up in heaven, and the reward that you chose was, hey, that was really good. I took notice. Jesus, remember, talks about leadership in Matthew 20, 25, and 28. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now why does Jesus use himself as an example here? He does so because Jesus is the ultimate example of a leader. Jesus led where he is. Remember that? Servant leadership? He is the creator of these principles. He perfectly embodies these principles because they are who he is. 
He uses his influence as the great creator God, comes down as a child, lives the life that we couldn't live, dies on the cross, rises again unto new life so that all of humanity, if they would trust in him, would be saved. That's the gospel. So does it matter if you go remembered? Do you guys know who Marion Hovey is? Why not? Why don't you know who Marion Hovey is? I mean, by golly, Marion Hovey of all people, I, I'm sure that you probably don't know her. She's one of the nameless ones who stood before God when she went to glory and heard, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, let me tell you, I knew her. I knew her when she was well advanced in years. She faithfully attended our church. She walked around the church with a big smile on her face. She was always one of those people that made you feel warm, loved, and accepted. Marion, when you looked at her, though, in this little congregation in Oak Lawn, Illinois, was not someone that you would look at and say, oh, wow, she's impressive. You just wouldn't think that because she didn't talk about herself like that. Well, my dad filled me in on the fuller story. <laughs> Marion was a retired missionary from Japan. She went into the field when she was just a young woman and she literally gave her life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. She never married. She rarely went home on furlough. She spent decade after decade just using the ordinary well. And while she was in Japan, she planted churches. She trained men up to become pastors and elders, just like Paul did in the book of Acts. And then she moved on to the next church. And if my memory serves me correctly, my dad says that she was instrumental in planting over 40 local churches in Japan. Why don't you guys know Marion? She's amazing. But it doesn't matter if you know her. Because God knows her. When you breathe your last breath, you're just going to be a footnote and a footnote inside of a footnote inside of a footnote in history. And that's if you did something. Does it matter if history remembers you? It doesn't. I believe that in eternity, the great notable people of history will be a footnote within a footnote and praying widows will walk the streets and be treated like dignitaries. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Now turn with me, Nehemiah 12, verse 27. We're going to see a fourth principle here. The fourth principle is this. When we pursue significance in God, we find joy. This is a big culminating theme here in the book of Nehemiah. When we studied Ecclesiastes, joy was a big culminating theme of that book. When people find God, when they live life in God's way, they find something that everyone's looking for. Joy. Look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, and harps, and lyres. And then we see in verse 31 that they start this great procession. Nehemiah says, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks 
31 tells us that uh, one of them went south. And verse 37 tells us that Ezra was at the head of this procession. Verse 38, the other choir then went north. And I followed then, and this is Nehemiah, on the wall. The celebration. The text says that the two great choirs went north and south, led by Ezra, followed by Nehemiah. The southern procession is walking along the wall that was the rubble field in Nehemiah's first survey on top of it, built up. The text gives us this impression that people were able to walk along the wall and and see the different places that they were instrumental involved in building up of this wall so that the goldsmiths could walk along and say, look, that's the part of the wall that I fixed. And Melchizedek looked over at the dung gate and he says, I'm really glad that's over with. Person after person would see the work and they took great delight in it. There was joy. There was singing, thanksgiving, rejoicing, musical instruments. Now, Old Sanballat and Tobiah were probably looking on and thinking to themselves, so what? So you guys build a wall. You're nothing big. So what if you overcame the opposition that we presented to you? You're not that important. I mean, just think about yourself in comparison to the Persian Empire, comparison to our own little empires that we have. You guys are nobodies from nowhere. It's kind of like thinking about a team that celebrates in a big way when they score a goal when they're down 25 to zero. You know, you think, just think about it with me for a minute. You have this team, uh, they are getting stomped upon, they band together, they, they go against a team that's completely outclassing them, completely overwhelming them, and they score a goal and they just erupt. In fact, one guy grabs the Gatorade jug and he just dumps it over the coach's head. Now, you'd be thinking to yourself, guys, shouldn't we put a couple more points on the board before we bust out the Gatorade? But this celebration was about more than a wall. It was about more than a single victory. They were celebrating because they were at the center of the action. They were doing God's work and in his way. Verse 43 explains the nature and the origin of their joy. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far and away. Psalm 48 gives us a sense of the reason why people would take joy in this city. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadel that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. John Piper was asked this question in Italy. What can I do to ensure my life counts? to ensure that the life God has given me matters. He responded like this. The true significance of life is that God made human beings in his own image with precious value. And that value, that significance, consists in knowing God, loving God, showing God. In other words, life is about God. 
Man is not central. God is central. He created the universe and humanity in order to magnify the greatness of God. And our joy in this world which God made essential is in Jesus Christ, in God the Father, and in the Holy Spirit. You see, when you come to know God, love God, and show God because you've trusted in his son Jesus, you find those two essential things that everyone wants. Significance and joy. Even when life gets difficult. I was reminded of this just this week. A faithful post from one of our members, Sarah Schrager. She said this, People often say that they couldn't do what I do, having a child with cancer. But it's not me. It's God in me. I truly don't know how families do it without Jesus. He is where my strength comes from. I'm overwhelmed by God's goodness to us. God continually strengthens us when we seek after him. He can do that for you. Come to him. Let him bear your suffering. Sarah is leading where she is. She has found her significance and joy in Christ. And this has empowered her even in the midst of something like cancer. What if we had a church of people who are willing to lead where they are on Cape Cod? What do you mean when you say lead where you are? (laughs) You might have noticed that I've never given it a full definition. I've been simply just building this concept as we've been making our way through this sermon series. Well, now it's time to define it fully for you. To lead where you are is this. Is living a wholly surrendered life unto God. It is a commitment to be faithful to do God's work in God's way. I've talked about those leadership principles, didn't I? The, the leadership, um, the reason we're talking about it so much is leadership is just simply leveraging your influence for the sake of leading other people. And what does the gospel and the Great Commission tell us to do? To influence other people so that they might come to know Christ. And in that way, every Christian is a leader. You are leading where you are when you are regularly by a name praying for people who do not know Jesus, and your prayer is with the intention of sharing Jesus with them. You are leading where you are when you are living a godly life that stands out at work, at home, in the community, and in your church. There's no duplicity in you, you have integrity. You're the same person in every sphere. You are leading where you are when you are telling people about the gospel message that God the Son lived the life that they couldn't live, died on the cross for them, rose again to new life, defeating sin and death, so that when they trust in Jesus with their life, their eternity is forever changed. Will you build the wall with me by intentionally leading where you are? Will you lead where you are? Now I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and hand some bricks to us. Just a little brick. Nehemiah has been a lot about this, hasn't it? Hard work, 
determination, grit for the sake of the kingdom. I want you to take these bricks as they pass them out to you and take them home with you. I don't want you to do anything with this brick at this point. I just want you to simply start praying and say, God, I want to do this. I want to lead where I am. I feel totally inadequate. I've never shared my faith. Maybe you're saying that. But I am willing. I will be courageous. I will lead where I am. The next thing I want you to do with this brick is not chew on it or throw it away. I want you to bring it back here on August 27th or September 3rd or September 10th or the 17th and there will be a big jar out in the lobby and I just want you to take that brick and by placing the brick in the jar you're saying before God and before the church, I'm willing to lead where I am. I also want to say this. Please don't put the brick in the jar if you don't intend to. Only put the brick in the jar if you mean that. And if you think to yourself, well, I don't know how to share Jesus with people, that's okay. We're going to provide opportunities through Thrive to equip members of this church to learn how to lead where they are. And so, here's the deal. Maybe for you, it just simply means putting your brick in the jar and your first commitment in leading where you are is, I'll get trained. I'll learn how to share Jesus with people. Pretty clear? You guys know what you're supposed to do? What's God going to do if you do it? What's God going to do if you do it? I believe that he will do exceedingly abundantly more than anything you could ask or think. That's how God works when we're faithful to him. You guys know Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham. Pretty popular guy. Shared the gospel with more people in history than anyone else who has ever lived. Do you know the chain of events that led to Billy Graham coming to faith? Starts out with a guy named D.L. Moody. He was instrumental in sharing Jesus on two continents. Thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ through his ministry. Well, one of those individuals happened to be a guy named Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman then went on to be a great evangelist sharing Jesus Christ with thousands. One of the people was a a baseball player at one of his crusades. That baseball player submitted his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday um, served with Chapman for some time and then Chapman decided to go into the ministry. So Sunday took over and started preaching the gospel and sharing Jesus Christ. And over time, a young guy named Mordecai Ham came to know Jesus. Now that's a name right out of Nehemiah, isn't it? Mordecai Ham. He was a great evangelist in the southern regions. One day, Ham was in Charlotte, North Carolina. He went to share the gospel. A sandy-haired, lanky young man, then in school, vowed that he would not go to Mordecai Ham's preaching. The guy's name was Billy Frank. That's what his family called him. But he was also a teenager, and he heard that some of the teenagers were going to go and disrupt Mordecai Ham's gospel presentation, and so he said, well, I've got to see that. And so he went. 
That night, Billy Frank heard the gospel and he was intrigued by it. The next night, he came back, heard the gospel, and he entrusted his life to Christ. Frank went on to be known as Billy Graham. 2.2 billion people have heard the gospel message through the mouth of Billy Graham. But you're thinking to yourself, big deal. It's a bunch of evangelists. I know that that's a, a strange sequence of events, but they're the pros. Do you know Edward Kimmel? Haven't heard of him, have you? Most people haven't heard of Edward Kimmel. Kimmel Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. Had a class of ruddy boys and he felt burdened for them and he said, you know what, I'm going to individually share Christ with each one of these guys. And I got to tell you, he hung tough because if you've never taught uh, a group of boys, a pack of boys, it's like herding cats. It's not easy. Well, he felt a burden for one young man in particular. He didn't seem to understand what the gospel was all about. So Kimball goes off to his shoe store and he confronts this young man and he says to him, have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? The young man entrusted his life to Christ. His name was D.L. Moody. God can do far more abundantly than you can ask or think. Pray. Will you lead where you are? Let's sing.